welcome to Archive Treasures, where we delve into the collection of the Trentham and Districts Historical Society to see what treasures we can discover. Each episode of Archive Treasures, we will be speaking to a member from the Historical Society. They will be telling us about something special, an object that has been preserved as part of the archival collection, an interesting event that occurred, or a project that the Society is undertaking. Archive Treasures is produced on Jajawarong country. We acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners, and we would also like to extend our respects to their elders, both past and present. On the 20th of January, 1972, Trentham lost one of her most loved and cherished citizens. The day of her funeral, the town closed down. Cars lined the streets as mourners upon mourners came to pay their last respects. Books have been written and stories told of the extraordinary impact she made, in her own quiet, unique way, to the people of Trentham and surrounding districts. You don't have to be in Trentham long to see references to our Dr Gwen. From photos and memoirs at the Historical Society to a lane named in her honour and a rather unusual memorial in the main street. This memorial incorporates a clock said to be deliberately set slow as she was always running late. Fifty years on, people still talk about Dr Gwyneth Wisewald. How did her presence in a small Victorian town lead to such a reverence of her memory? How many other citizens would have that effect on their community? In honour of the 50th anniversary of her passing, a number of people who knew her have agreed to share their recollections of Dr Gwen and the impact she had on their lives. No recollection of Dr Gwen would be complete without hearing from Ian Braybrook, author of Outpost Doctor. Ian's family were forever indebted to her for the care she gave to their father and themselves. Dr Gwen, as it often was told, went well beyond what some could say were her obligations as a medical practitioner. This was apparent in her care for all her patients, including Ian's family. Ian has very kindly agreed for us to republish a program he made about Dr Gwen in 1983, and this will be in a further episode. I have with me today Ian Braybrook, author, broadcaster, and strong contender as number one fan of Dr. Gwyneth Wisewald. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today, Ian. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Before we talk about Dr. Gwen and the impact she had on your life, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Oh, myself? Oh, well, I'm old, <laughs> for a start. Um, I've had a lot of, lot of long experience in radio for the last uh, 45 years or something. Um, that's mainly my main occupation, really, I suppose. Before that, I was uh, doing anything that could, I could turn my hand to. You know, I started off as a... My first job was a, a telegram boy at the Footscray Post Office. OK. On a bike? Yeah, on a bike, yep. Yeah. Uh, I think I might have been just... Uh, I wasn't even... Four, I was still 13, 13 and a half. And uh, I used to ride around Footscray with all the other... I think it was about four or five of us kids worked there on the old push bikes delivering telegrams. Mm-hmm. 
uh, in those days, telegrams were pretty important because most people didn't have a phone. And if you wanted to get some communication to someone in a hurry, you sent a telegram. Yep. Yeah, and we boys delivered them. Well, not for long because um, one of the boys decided to hide all the telegrams. Instead of delivering them, he just threw them away virtually, stuffed them down a drain. And uh, some bloke saw all these telegrams and picked them all up and brought them into the post office, showed them to the post, uh, postmaster. He lined us up as fifers, I think, uh, lined us all up and said, brother, who did this? Uh, and no one confessed. So we all got the sack, a whole lot of us. It wouldn't happen today, really, but um, that, that's what it was like then. So that was my first job. And I went backwards from there. So, so here I am today. Yeah. Yes, right. Yes, and a, a long history in broadcasting and and writing books. I've written a few. Nothing, no world beaters. Probably one of the best. Probably the best one. I uh, best selling one I've written was about Dr. Gwen. Uh, I think um, I sort of come from the heart, really, because I just loved the old girl. I mean, she was so kind to my family uh, when. We lived at Trentham. When we first arrived here, oh, the Depression had just finished, really. Uh, we were still the Depression at our place. The Depression had lasted forever at our place, I think. And so we were at Blackwood. Then we moved to a house just out the road here in Cosmo Road. And the house is still there. It's not quite, as, uh, not quite the same as when we left it in 1946. But it's still there. My parents are both in the cemetery here three or four doors away from Dr Gwen and Dorothy Bethune and Ella, Ella Bell, who was uh, Gwen's partner. Um, yeah, so I've got a pretty strong attachment to Trentham. So your father died while you are out at Blackwood? Um, uh, in Trentham, at Cosmo Road. Oh, OK. You just left the road, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And then your family left the district? We left, uh, I suppose, six months later. Um, and we went to Melbourne to live in a place called South Kingsville, which is near Spotswood. And I went to the Spotswood Primary School uh, for a while. And then we moved again and again and again and again. I think, I don't know, I think I counted up in total about 21 houses I'd lived in from the time I was born until I was about you know, 14. Fifteen, yeah, something like that. A lot of moves. Oh, yeah. Which was part of the times, wasn't it? The well, it was. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really know why we moved so much, but um, we lived in some very odd little houses around this part of the world. Uh, we'd move from one to the other for some reason. But when we finally got a house in, in Cosmo Road, uh, we moved there with, uh, from uh, Garlic's Lead or Newbury. Uh, where I started school, by the way, the Garlic Sled Primary School. It's still there. The building's still there, right. of course. Um, then we moved into this house in Cosmo Road, which was a real palace compared to what we used to. And we hadn't been there very long when my dad died. So, you know, we moved on again. Hmm. And you talk about in your book that ep episode and I think a little bit in documentary as well about Dr Weisel coming... Right. Yeah, yeah, well, the reason we... Yeah, well, at first, when she, we first met Gwen, um, my mum told me, and we were out at uh, Barry's Reef, living there in a little place out there, a little humpy. 
which is still standing. Miraculously, it is. hasn't fallen over. Uh, and Mum saw, said she saw this uh, old car pull up and a woman got out with half a dozen dogs jumped out of the car with her. But she took this person to be a, a bush worker or something and thought, oh, this person's coming to ask directions or something. But no, it was uh, Dr Gwen because the way she dressed. I mean, she dressed in men's clothes. She dressed for the area, didn't she? Oh, the absolutely. The and the oh, she was sensible. Yeah. 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 And Mum was quite surprised when she opened the door and this lady, very ladylike, said, Hello, I'm Dr Wisewold, the new doctor. I believe you have a sick husband. Could I see him? And uh, that was where it started. She had heard somewhere or other that my dad wasn't very well. And uh, from then on, she looked after us all very well. Terrific. All of your family and your brother Frank sadly passed away last week. Yeah, he just um, passed away a week ago. Um, yeah, because Frank and I, at that time, toward the end of the war, there was an epidemic came through Trentham of scarlet fever, which uh, in a lot of cases turned to rheumatic fever. And Frank and I both had rheumatic fever, which in those days was a deadly disease. There was no real cure for it. And Dr Gwen looked after us both. We were both bedridden at home. Mum and, my mum and dad looked after us. Uh, and she used to call in once a week, have a cup of tea with mum and uh, check us check kids out. On check on you all, sure we had, yeah. Make sure we were behaving ourselves and not sitting up in bed. We weren't even allowed to sit up oh, in bed. At because you had to. Mm, had to lie flat. But, you know, as I said before, there was no cure, but she, she was determined she was going to look after us boys, the two of us. And I guess you can say that it's a credit to her that we're both, well, my brother was almost 90 and I'm 84. As a result of her care, I'm sure, at that time, yeah. And didn't have the um, the drugs and the things that you'd have now? No, nothing like that, yeah. nothing. There's no, there's no cure for that at all. So So after you left the area, so you'd moved, lived in a few places and mm. then once your father died, obviously things changed. When did you next see Dr Gwen? Ah. Oh. I didn't see her for years. I think it was about 1962 or thereabouts, something like that. My wife at the time and my two kids, two little kids, we came up from Melbourne where we were living in Williamstown and uh, went a bit of a picnic out in the bush at Blackwood. And I, <laughs> I reached into the boot of the car, my old Morris Oxford, to get something out of the boot and there was something sharp there and it cut my wrist across there. That's about the scar is still there. Uh, of course, uh, oh, a doctor, I've got to get a doctor, this is no good. So I thought, I'll go into Trentham, it's not that far, I'll go and see if Dr Gwen's around. So, around. so I went to her. I went to her. Dr Gwen lived in, oh, up on the other side of town, on the, what would you say, the west place up there, which was burnt down later on. And I fought my way through all the bushes and scrub that was there, because it was all overgrown, it was incredible. And... Uh, I went to ring the doorbell, and the doorbell on the door was sort of hanging off by the wire, you know, one of those electric ones. And finally I knocked on the door, and Dr Gwen appeared. And she remembered me straight away when I told her who I was. And she said, OK, we've got to fix this up again. Come into my... <laughs> what she laughingly called a consulting room. And uh, I'll never forget it, really, because it was... The council where you're supposed to lie to be examined was piled high with old newspapers and ma- magazines and 
absolute junk everywhere. He couldn't move in the place. On the windowsill was uh, a range of bottles and things sitting up there, and I'm sure one was a specimen bottle of someone's urine for ten years before. <laughs> well aged. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so she said, right, "We're going to fix this up, and we'll, we'll put some stitches in this because it certainly needs stitching." So she got a Vegemite jar. This is true. A rusty-looking old lid on it because those days were tin lids, and. Uh, she got this hook needle out and she said, put a bit of thread in it. So, okay, so she started to, to, to sew the, the wound and the, I was just about collapsing with pain. She said, well, I think that needle's a bit blunt here and we'll try another one. So she dives into the Vegemite jar and got another one to put the second stitch in and that was just as bad. It was so blunt. And she looked at the work and said, oh, I think it needs another one again. I said, no, I think it's all right, Doctor. It'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's all right, Doctor. Thank you very much. So that was when the next time I saw her. And I didn't see her a lot after that, really. Made a lot of memories of her until, until she died. Uh, 1972, I remember it very well. Uh, I was living at Malmesbury at that time and came across to the funeral. It was a massive funeral. Incredible. I mean, it was just the place, the town was packed. You couldn't get anywhere near the church. It was impossible to get near the church. I stood on the post office steps and listened to the ceremony. This is the Anglican church. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so there was a huge procession out to the yeah. cemetery. It was the biggest funeral, I think, ever in the history of this town. It must have been. It was massive. Because she was so uh, well-regarded, I guess, but not everyone loved her, of course. Some people disliked her intensely for yeah. some reason or another, you know. But I think doctors uh, make a few mistakes, and uh, you know, human. <laughs> they do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people had memories of some of the mistakes she made. But uh, overall, she was amazing. And I think um, you know, I mean, there's so many things that she did while she was here, but quite unusual. Unusual, you know, it's, it's, uh, her background was just incredible. The qualifications she had were amazing. For a country doctor, I, well, I think I was reading somewhere recently that the, the impression was that a country doctor was sort of for those who weren't necessarily... Yeah, the centre of the well country. As well suited. <laughs> <laughs> Send them off to the bush. Yes. Yeah, get them out of town. Well, that's what they did with Gwen. Uh, not because she was a bad doctor, she was brilliant. I mean, she was uh, you know, a medical officer at most of the major hospitals. Um, she was a she had rooms in Columbus Street, Melbourne. She was the cream of uh, society there. Had room uh, consulting rooms out at um, St Kilda, near St Kilda. She was very busy when you read all the things she was doing in town. Oh yeah, she was. Yeah, she was very much in demand. But the bohemian lifestyle she lived we didn't go down very well with uh, Dame Mabel Brooks, who ran the hospital. She ruled that hospital. <laughs> and she, Gwen fell foul of her because of her bohemian ways. Um, when she came up here, though, that it's interesting because traditionally, well, country areas are thought of as conservative mm. and... Coming up here because of, as you say, she'd fallen foul of um, the Melbourne establishment. Yeah. Um, mm. Because of that, but she was, within a fairly short time, actually accepted up here. Amazing. Despite 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, at that time, people at Trentham were glad to get a doctor of any sort. And no one ever really questioned it, I don't think, as far as I know. They were a bit surprised that when she arrived the next day, they unloaded a motorbike off the train. You know, that sort of caused a bit of a, a, bit of a ta- tongue wagging around the town. I'm a doctor with a motorbike, come on, you know. But she didn't ride the motorbike. Uh, she only rode it once, she rode it to Melbourne. Yeah, she went to, uh, she rode the motorbike. I don't know why she rode it to Melbourne, because she had a car. Anyway, she must have decided to buy the cobwebs out of the old bike and she rode it to a medical sort of a convention at the, the University of Melbourne. And, of course, they, she turned up on the motorbike with all this bike gear and stuff all over, you know. And I don't think how the, <laughs> the doctors reacted when they first saw her, but uh, that's the only time she ever rode that bike, as far as we know, the motorbike. It would have been a long way. Oh, it would have been a long way, yeah. It was... Uh, I don't know what time, what year it was on, but certainly probably in the 1950s or thereabouts, I'd say. But she was so well known around town here that I think everyone knew her. And uh, I think everyone liked her, um, in spite of her unusual ways, like. (laughs) And some of the stories about her, there's mention of her not really caring as much about money or her clothes as would be expected. I think in your documentary, Sister Kath Tresseter said she was more concerned about the person oh, yeah. than the outside. Oh, yeah. She, on, yeah. she didn't worry about her appearance at all. Uh, and she didn't, certainly didn't worry about money. I mean, most people never got a bill from her. It was very unusual. And I know that people had to go and sort of beg to get a, a bill. And she'd say, oh, yes, I'll send it to you, don't worry. Never did. She didn't need money because of her background. She came very, very... From a very wealthy family. No, no, money didn't mean a lot to her at all, but people did, sure, and uh, and dogs. <laughs> I think she put dogs ahead of people sometimes, really, because she just loved loved her dogs and anyone's dog. I mean, she had a way with dogs. Uh, just out the road past where we lived in Cosmo Road was a little old lady there, Miss Clark, I remember, and she had this dog called Mickey. And every time we walked past her place, this dog would go bananas like it was going to tear us to pieces and it couldn't get out through the high wire fence. And this was a very wild, savage dog. But Gwen would go there and pat the dog and, you know, she had this way with dogs and animals, yeah. Do you think she um, had an influence? Because she was accepted, she had the bohemian lifestyle and she was, she and her, I'd say, entourage, she had... Dorothy, her adopted sister, and yeah. Ella, her companion, partner. Yeah. Um, do you think that changed attitudes generally in, 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 her, in this area, or was it really it was about her? Yeah, it was only about her. Um, I don't think anyone really took any notice of her. She was a good doctor and she yeah. did what they needed. That's from my recollection, I never heard anyone say anything about her lifestyle. But Dorothy Bethune, her... She was a receptionist, um, and no one got past Dorothy with him. And there's another person who is not really known, but should be known. She was the first almoner at the uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital, and she, her whole life was devoted to that, to good work for people. Yeah, and she's in the Trentham Cemetery there, in the yeah, next door to Gwen. Uh, 
and Ella, the three of them in the row, Dorothy, Ella and Gwen, two of them in the same grave, I can't which, remember which is which now, but they were very close people, very close, and Dor- Dorothy herself, is a, she's a story on her own, on her own really, but I thought about pursuing it and trying to write about her, but... Um, I found that the Bethune family, getting off the track, the Tasmanian family, are very private, extremely private, and I could get very little information from them at all. And the Field family, of which Gwen was one, oddly enough, there's, they're gone. There was one left I could find in Tasmania, uh, and uh, he was quite eccentric, quite eccentric. That was on her mother's side. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, and that was... a. Because you would have had to do a lot of research for your book. You took me to Tasmania and, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of work and trying to find out stuff about doctors, especially back then even, no one would talk about a doctor. No, the medical people would just, they wouldn't discuss. No, no one talked about another doctor. It just wasn't done. So I thought I'd got a breakthrough once on the medical board of Victoria. I thought I could contact them. I think I spoke to a woman and she said, yes, we'll send to you, we'll send you her file. Oh, my God. So they did. They sent me her file. I opened it up. And there was one thing in it, a letter. Dated 1948. She moved to Trentham in 1938. This letter was dated 1948, advising the medical board of her change of address. That's all that <laughs> That was it. So, ten years. so that was her. Ten years later, she just thought I'd better tell them I've moved. As well as her uh, doctoring, she was also an artist and a poet and author as well. Yeah, she was. She's very talented in lots of ways. And some of her artwork is still, I think there's some of it still here in Trentham. She had, for a while there, when she had the falling out with Dane Maple books and she got sacked from the hospital. She, that's, that's what happened. She got the sack, which was the end of her career in Melbourne, to get sacked by the... No, that was just... Nowhere to go. Yeah, no, well, that's it. Yeah, that's why she finished up buying a practice in Trentham, mm. where no one knew her, and she could start life again. But uh, at that time, she seriously considered giving up medicine altogether and taking up art full-time because she was a very talented painter. And some of her... I wish I had some of her works. I haven't got it. But I know that there's some of it still around. I think the hospital here may have it. And if you see that... Work, you know, she she was a very talented person. Um, oh, look, she she did some weird, funny things. She she go to sleep on the side of the road, you know. She feel tired, so she pull up and go to sleep on the side of the road, sit in the car. I can always remember one told the story about Tiger Robson, who had the motor garage here in town. Uh, he told me about this story that she bought. She had a Hillman car at the time. I don't know, before, it must have been before or after she had the ute, before she had the ute, the Dodge ute. And she brought it in to get serviced. I'll fix it. You know, he said, oh, I had to put in another clutch. She kept burning out the clutches on her because she, the way she drove. He said, and I sort of smelt the strange sort of smell and he said, started scratching around the car and under the seat was a dead possum. Been there for a don't know how long. He said, she must have picked it up off the side of the road, you know, been killed. Was going to probably take it and give it a decent burial or something, which is she loved animals, and then must have forgotten it was there. And <laughs> so Tiger found this dead possum in her car. It's uh, well past its years by date, apparently. 
So, you know, I'd say you'd have to say she was eccentric, really. Yeah. Not the full two ball. That's the idea. I don't think I even mentioned it in the book, but um, I think Jack Mayen told me that he saw her one day. She had a pith helmet on, wearing a pith helmet, and she was standing on the corner of High Street in the corner. She was making one of Churchill's speeches, and he said, I think she actually thought she was Winston Churchill, you know. So I think by that time she was, you know, getting quite eccentric, really, yeah. Because she was, she actually was were quite involved with staging plays or things in the... Oh, yeah, well, fundraisers into the entertainment, though, yeah, Gwen was right into it, you know. She even played Santa Claus every year. She'd dress up as Santa Claus, and she made a pretty good, jolly-looking Santa Claus, I suppose, really. She had the build for it, you know. Um, that was one thing. She used to write poems every year, a big, lengthy poem, which mentioned just about everyone in the town. You've got a line in her poem about what have you... Everyone featured. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, she did that sort of stuff. And that's the sort of reason I think people loved her, really. And she, she'd called her to, uh, on a consultation to, to see someone and she'd finish up, you know, staying for a cup of tea and cakes and stuff and turn it into a bit of a social, social event, you know. Entirely uh, different today, the doctoring today, I mean... I mean, you try and get a doctor to do a house call today and it's not easy. But uh, back then, you know, and, uh, <coughs> when, but the roads back then when she was here were nothing like that today. They were just dirt tracks, really, all the way through to Blackwood. It was just horrible roads. No, well, even today. But back then, and I can remember uh, the road, what it was like then, there were a lot of very sharp bends. They've taken out now, the, you know, really sharp bends, uh, right on the edge of great precipice, really, if you went off the road, there's curtains for you, and they were mud, and then the winter, which lasts about 11 months of the year in Trentham. Uh, <laughs> yes, as we've got witness today. <laughs> it was just a pile of mud, you know, mud. It was pretty hard, because she drove out all hours, didn't she? Oh, yeah, middle of the night somewhere, you know. Yes, yeah, some of the places she had to visit her patients at home, you know, I mean, it's just almost inaccessible. Some of these old fellows lived out in the bush out there, you know, she'd find her way there at night somehow. I just don't know how she did it. I don't know how she did it. You know, you think she was such a, the upbringing she had, she was such a sheltered life. She was actually educated at home. That's right. Yeah, she was, all for, except for about two weeks, I think, she went to a private school and didn't like it, so that she had a governess or two who educated her at home. And she didn't even try to matriculate. I think she was quite older uh, when she finally got on the trick. And then she wanted to be a doctor. That was her ambition. From, I think she said, told on the recorder once she, from the time she was three years old, she wanted to be a doctor. But her father... He wouldn't want to have her be a doctor. Oh, no. In fact, um, he said to her, no, no daughter of mine is going to be exposed to looking at men's private parts. That's, that was his main concern. Poor Gwenny was shattered, really, because she so wanted to be a doctor after she matriculated. And finished up her mum, who was quite wealthy, independently wealthy, 
she actually paid for, secretly paid for Glenn's tuition at the uni, and off she went. And what a great thing it was that Mum did that for her, you know, defying Frank. To defy Dad in those days, especially at him, he was a big-time solicitor. And, I mean, a lot of the men were so superior in those days. They were. And they ruled with an iron fist, you know, you'd do as I'd say. So to defy Dad, it was a big step for Gwen and her mother. Yeah. But uh, it turned out well yeah. for Trentham. It's 1938 to 19... Well, 72, dead, yeah, so that's right. 34 years. A long time. She was... Yeah. Uh, she, uh, yeah. And, you know, the poor girl, she, the house was burnt down. That was a terrible disaster. And she had a house full of antiques. Yeah. God knows how much they were worth, really. Uh, they were completely destroyed. The whole thing was destroyed completely. I think... Uh, there was a house, a new house was built there, and I did notice they called it Gwenhurst for a while, but I don't think it's called that now. But that's where she lived. Right opposite uh, where Kit Trawalla lived, I think the house of Trawalla's hers is still there, two-storey place mm. on the left, because Gwen was almost opposite, and they were very good friends, Kit Trawalla of the, the famed Trawalla family. Not many people know these days about Trawalla Jacks, but they were sold around the world and they were made right here in Trentham. So much a part of this town. Was that really was one of the main stays of the, the employment? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where so many people work there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she treated on some of the most famous uh, <laughs> miracles of work from the, there. Well, yeah, they, I mean, the, the guy Stevens, the, the news agent, he was later. He, I think um, he tried to use a small steel bar to, to move some belting uh, overhead belts on, in the foundry to shut them down, which they used to do a lot of them, dangerous practice. But that got, the bar got caught in the, the, the big wheel somehow and drove this crowbar into his chest and must have missed his heart by a fraction. You know. and it, it was a terrible thing. And I, um, but he survived. But I remember Gwen saying to me, and he said, that, 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 well, I was talking to her in about, I think about 1970, that she didn't know what to do. She said, I arrived there, that I got the call, went around, and here's this poor guy, barely breathing. He said, I, and she, she was horrified to see what had happened to him, this iron bar out of his, sticking out of his chest. And she said, I didn't know what to do. And I, I said, I've got to go to the car and get some equipment. So she went, out, she went to the car and trying to think, you know, what am I going to do? And on the way back, she saw a big vat of water. So she got a hypodermic and filled it up with water and went back and plunged it into the man's chest. And he, he actually revived. And people thought, this is a miracle. They didn't know what, what she'd used was dirty water out of a vat, you know, tank. So, yeah, that, was, that really made her uh, reputation. Yeah, because the guy actually survived. And it was a miracle that he did, absolute miracle. Uh, so, you know. Certainly some stories around from unfortunate accidents. Mm. Well, yeah, she, she had to deal with the most horrible accidents here. Because there are a lot of bush workers and uh, you know, using saws, axes, 
and uh, did themselves some terrible injuries, you know, people cut their legs off and all this sort of thing, and she had to deal with that sort of stuff. And uh, she managed to do it, but God, when you think of the hospital she had to work in, it was a tiny little thing, and I think there was only one one nurse, there might have been two sometimes, there might have been two, but mostly only one. And a very primitive bush nursing hospital, you know, there was no facilities, nothing there, no, nothing really. And that's all she had to work with. She did some wonderful things there. Yeah, so she's a legend, and I think, uh, I know that she's still highly regarded in Trentham. And I think I said, well, yes, I said to you on the phone, I hadn't been here long before I realised that mm. there'd been this person who had made well, such an yeah. impact. Yeah, well, yeah, there was a, a police woman, Sharon Rado, who was here until recently. And Sharon, uh, she really took it up, you know, took the cause of Gwen up, and mm. she did a lot of work on that. She organised a, a function a couple of years, two or three years ago, sort of a, a Remember Dr Gwen event, mm. and, um, and she was very, very supportive of Gwen. Uh, Sharon was now stationed in Ballarat. I think she's got too hot for here. The weather was too warm, so she moved to Ballarat. Look, it's great to be able to talk, to, talk about Gwen. It's a person that I've uh, always admired. Thank you for talking to me today. And we will also put out the radio documentary you made yeah. in 1983 and mm. that'll be great for people to hear who haven't already or to hear it again. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. You have been listening to Stories from Within the Archives. I'm Rosie Hill and this is Archive Treasures. If you would like to hear further episodes, you can find our podcasts on our website, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and the Podbean app. Archive Treasures is produced by the Trentham and Districts Historical Society. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to hs or go to our Facebook page, Trentham and Districts Historical Society, Australia. I hope you can tune in next time for more archive treasures. Archive Treasures